Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. I'm glad the rain is not happening right now. Um, I was driving in this morning realizing there's wet roads. Thankful that the Lord has uh, at least held it off for now. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus' ministry has been transitioning over the last um, chapter or so in Matthew's record of the events in his life. And you're seeing increasing opposition to his ministry. And as that opposition grows, Jesus' response is to uh, navigate by focusing on mentoring and, and I would say discipling, it might sound redundant, discipling his disciples and cultivating in them a spiritual maturity that's ready for his crucifixion and departure. He's also turning um, away from public teaching so much so that his ministry, especially the scribes, the Pharisees, and those who are in opposition is a little bit um, less persistent, a little less direct. We come to Matthew 13, we have the beginning of parables. And parables are one of these fascinating um, works of Christ where he teaches in such a way that in the same moment he's instructing as well as concealing. He's exposing truth to people while at the same time purposefully hiding from some the truth of God, the truth of the message of the gospel, the truth of redemption. Um, chapter 13 lays out the first uh, 23 or so verses in, in kind of a little bit of a, a, a sandwich format where we have an initial parable, an explanation, and then another parable. And so this morning we want to just kind of set our, our sights on focusing on the parable itself. It's the parable of the sower. That's how most people identify it. And it's a story of a man who goes out to uh, plant seed, and the way he plants seed is by casting, casting the seeds out on a field. And so Jesus walks through this, and he builds this extended analogy to teach us. And then Jesus explains the point of that. So I'm going to read from verse 13 down through this whole entire section, and then we'll focus, again, particularly on the parable itself. So let's begin in verse 1. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat behind the sea, excuse me, sat beside the sea. I'm not sure what behind it would have meant. He sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the, ground, uh, the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more, who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, saying, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and with, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself 
but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So you see, he begins with that parable about this man sowing seed, and it concludes with that same parable. And in the middle is, is somewhat of a, a discussion about why he's doing this type of teaching. Why is he using stories that confuse some and enlighten others? And he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah is condemning people for their hard-heartedness. And so Jesus, seeing that same hard-heartedness, is explaining to his disciples how people respond to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So when you consider what Jesus is doing, I think in many ways he's shepherding the church. He's shepherding his disciples to understand the challenges that come with gospel ministry. Imagine you're a member of the church that's 40 years after Jesus has passed away. The king of kings has come. He's promised you that all authority is given to him and that he's going to grow his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And you're ministering and you're, you're receiving persecution. Most of the apostles have already been killed for their faith. You're looking around at your church and you're wondering where your neighbor is that trusted Christ. He's no longer with you, not because he was killed, but because he just quit. As you share the message of repentance and call people to follow Christ, there's some people who jump in and they're excited and, and, and their light shines brightly for a moment and then all of a sudden they're gone and, and some business venture and making lots of money and Christ seems to just be just a distant memory for them. And you look at the church that you thought would just continue to blow up like it did in Jerusalem and keep growing and take over the world. And there's just a handful of you singing together and trying to encourage each other, but your heart wonders, why isn't this thing bigger? What is God doing? Why is it so hard? What about those who left? When we get persecuted, our church shrinks. Why? Jesus is explaining both, I think, in his ministry as well as in the ministry of, of the gospel message, why church isn't just simple? Why isn't it just so straightforward? I mean, think about the gospel message and ask yourself just, just the question of why not? Because here's the gospel. The God who made you, who is good, calls you to return to his goodness and in so doing, be rescued from his righteous judgment that will fall on you for eternity. You have the choice of choosing to follow Christ, to turn away from pursuing your own desires and be saved forever, or you can choose your own desires and be punished forever. With forever in the balance, what do you think any common sense person would choose? Why risk forever when the cost is in this life challenge and hardship a little bit, but also the blessing of knowing Christ, of knowing hope, of being secure? Maybe from, from those of you who share faith in Christ, you look at that, that decision and you think, man, this is just, maybe we'd use the word common sense. Like, choose Jesus. He will save you from hell forever. Every one of us should choose Jesus. That makes sense. How come the world isn't getting saved? How come our neighbors, when we tell them about Jesus Christ, we're just like, eh. Well, do you, do you hate Jesus? No, no, I think he's probably, you know. No, I don't know. Why don't you choose Jesus? Or you, you have someone who's in the church who seems to truly embrace the Christ of scriptures, understand his life, death, and resurrection, and with arms of faith, they seem to wrap around and hold on to Jesus, and then they just drift away. And, and in your heart and your mind, you're saying, what is going on? Why? Jesus is shepherding his disciples 
I think in the context of his ministry, in a few weeks and months, they're going to see people just fall away from following him in, in multitudes of people. In the feeding of the 5,000, John records that as Jesus ministers to these people, and he feeds 5,000 men. So if you're just to double that with women, and then maybe add another, you're looking at 15,000 with women and children added onto that number. So he feeds 10 to 15,000 people. And then when he preaches his message of faith in him, they walk. Most of them walk. They want nothing to do with him. Now, if you're Peter, what are you thinking? How do you, how do you filter this through? Jesus' parable gives a theological understanding of what's going on in the human heart as it responds to the gospel. It's incredibly helpful. So we begin with this, this story uh, that then he builds the analogy around the gospel with. So the seed refers to the gospel, right? It refers to the proclamation of the kingdom of Christ and Christ as king. It refers to the ministry of grace that's going on in the community. So Jesus walks through the, the streets of Capernaum. He's ministering around the area of Galilee. He goes down to Jerusalem. He is casting out the seed of gospel preaching. They're preaching about the kingdom. And as he preaches, people who truly believe are brought into citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And so he's, he's doing this gospel ministry, and he compares it to a sower who throws seed. We might use the word planter. He's planting. I mean, I, I don't think of good farmers as just chucking seed around, but this is his analogy, so we're walking with it. So there are four responses for, for we'll say, soils. The first one is, is this packed dirt path. Seed lands on it. What happens to the seed? It doesn't penetrate into the soil. It doesn't get protected. In fact, it sits there as a nice meal for any birds flying by. And if you've ever seen freshly planted grass, often there are like sparrows all over those fields eating the grass seed. And sure enough, Jesus' description here, look down with me in this passage. He describes that, that first group in verse 19. Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. The path refers to the people that are lost, unsaved, because they refuse to respond in faith. Now Jesus indicates here that for whatever reason they didn't understand, there is some mental disconnect between them and the gospel, whether it remains foreign to them, as in they don't personally embrace it, uh, just scientific fact. I mean, there's some, there's some truth that hit home, right? They're just facts of history connect. If you have a loved one lost, that's a fact. They, they've passed away. But when you think about it, it's not just merely, you know, Grandma Sue is no longer with us. It's your favorite grandma, the one that you kind of look like, the one who doted on you when you were a kid, and then you start thinking about her life, and that fact of history becomes very personal. I'm going to take a shot in the dark here. I don't think anyone has ever cried over two plus two. There are some facts that do not connect to us emotionally. We can, we can understand them intellectually, but personally, there's very little connection. And some of you who hate math said, no, I cried over two plus two. <laughs> Believe me. Facts don't generally move us when they're impersonal, when they're just things. But Jesus Christ and the gospel message is not just a thing. It's not just mere claims. He is this, he is this, he is this. These facts are personal and they relate to you. And so this person who doesn't understand in, in whatever way they fail to make connection personally to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, they remain unmoved and refuse to come to Christ, what then happens? Look in the text. It says, in verse 19, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is a sobering warning, isn't it? And Jesus has just walked through an embattled series of confrontations with the religious leaders who are hard-hearted. Just like the hard-packed dirt. 
who does he identify is moving the hearts of the hard-hearted? It says the evil one. Just a simple reference to Satan himself. And if there's any warning from this passage we might need to hear more clearly, it's the reality that in gospel ministry, it is not neutrality. It is not as though in this moment right now, Jesus is speaking through his word and there's nothing else happening. There is the evil one, Satan, at play when the gospel ministry is happening and he is doing everything he can to distract you with cars or huge flying beetles. He is doing everything he can to move your heart and your attention away from Jesus Christ. And for some of you, to give in, to disinterest, to fail to understand who Jesus is and fail to personally respond in faith in Jesus Christ is not simply putting off to another day your response. It is, in fact, to put yourself in jeopardy of being under Satan's manipulation and power for eternity. I can just tell you that you and I probably rarely think of Satan at work when the gospel of the kingdom is being preached. But he is. Maybe you've had this conversation before with friends that you're hoping to call to Christ, is you might even end the conversation with like, hey, I want you to think about it and pray about it and then come back. And, and sometimes even in pre presenting the gospel and calling people to come to Christ, we are perhaps communicating indifference. Like, hey, take your time. No hurry here. Come at your own pace. As though the enemy is not seeking to devour and ruin those who remain outside of Christ. So the first reception, and this is helpful for the disciples because they see the supposed righteous and religious leaders of the day hard to Jesus, indifferent, cold. What are they to think of them? Simply this, they are ministers of Satan. They have responded poorly to the Son of God. They have rejected and hard-hearted refusal to submit to the King of Kings. And as such, they reveal that they are actually allies of the evil one. There is no neutrality. They are either for Christ or against him. So he says, listen, when you hear the message preached, you cannot remain indifferent. And I would suggest even as believers, when you hear the word of God opened up, buy in. Respond actively by saying, Lord, I believe. Respond with submission to the king. When you learn something new, when you learn that some behavior you're participating in is wrong, don't say, oh, that's interesting. If you're involved in a behavior and it's wrong, the righteous response is, Lord, thank you for teaching me. Please forgive me for not knowing and forgive me for disobeying, even though it's done in ignorance. Lord, draw me close and cleanse me from sin. I can't tell you the number of times this little verse do everything without grumbling and complaining has whacked me upside the head. It's sin to complain. Have you been on Facebook lately? Some of you, you're there, you're the one. You complain on Facebook. Maybe you just complain to your family. Maybe you complain about your family. Complaining is sin. And every time I turn back and think of that verse, there's usually something in my life I have to say, Lord, forgive me for not thanking you for our governor, for our president, for the current political messiness. Lord, thank you for giving us hard times. Listen, there ought to be a submission to Scripture that is sweet. Because hardness to Scripture leaves you vulnerable to the devil. And I think if we can at least make the application 
the response that leaves you vulnerable as an unbeliever of resisting the grace of God and the gospel, that we shouldn't then say, well, then as believers, I can be firm against Scripture when I'm feeling convicted because I like my sin, and think that somehow we are not making ourselves vulnerable to temptation. But that's just the first soil, and I actually think it's probably one Jesus is less concerned that his church be informed of. As we continue walking through this text, he moves to the second soil. This is the one, maybe you could call it the rocky soil. This person is lost because they drift when life becomes hard. Look down at verse 20 with me. As, as life becomes hard, and here's the two words he uses for hardness or for, for difficulties, tribulation and persecution. So the sun comes out, it's scorching in its heat. Uh, the real life example of this is someone who's suffering tribulation and persecution. They're being pressed, they're being hurt. Life is difficult. That word persecution is used in Acts where the apostle Paul, before he was the apostle, was persecuting the church. So if we're going to take kind of the, the broad approach, life is hard sometimes simply through circumstances. I mean, 2020 is going to go down as one of those years for everybody, right? I mean, sometimes the suffering is just simply having your kids never leave your house to go to school. But some people have experienced real heartbreaking stuff where their life's business has gone bankrupt because of the economic hardships. Some people have lost loved ones this year. I think in some ways, and, and I do not feel this with our church, so don't hear me to be saying this, but there are some churches and some people who are boldly standing for Christ who are experiencing persecution. The Christian should not be surprised that life is hard and filled with persecution. So again, reading back in verse 20, this is on rocky ground, this one, Hugh, hears the word and immediately receives it with what? Joy. There's happiness and excitement, yet he has no root in himself. Uh, I, we could take this a couple different ways. I, I think I would tend to take this as no depth of conviction. That is, it's a superficial, this is a good thing right now. And again, let's go to the common sense route. On one side, we have eternal destruction. On the other side, I pray this prayer and get Jesus and I'm saved. I'm saying it like that. I never, hardly ever talk about getting saved so simply. So let me say it again. Hell on one side, praying a prayer of confession on the other. Is salvation simply praying a prayer of confession? Good, I'm glad. I'm seeing the head shake. No. Okay, it's so much deeper than that. It's a full-hearted, lifelong commitment to Christ as King, turning away from pleasing myself so that I can pursue the joy of Christ. His joy, not mine. And at some point, these things kind of align. That is, I can, I can please myself by doing what Jesus says. This last summer, we drove across country and every once in a while, we would hit a connection on a highway that was going the exact opposite direction, generally speaking, that we wanted to go. Usually it's in a city or something like this. So we're going from California to Florida. We're coming back. And we go through a city, and all of a sudden, we're like on westbound. My wife's like, Mark, are you sure? We're supposed to be going east. Where are we going west? I'm like, eh, just, we're on this for like two miles as we hit an interchange, and we're going to be gone off it. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. That really didn't happen. But you guys understand that happens in cities, right? Like you're sometimes going the wrong direction for a little bit. So here's someone for a little bit. They're walking the same way a saved person would. But all of a sudden, the turn starts to draw stress. It's causing affliction and a hardship. And they're like, no, 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 no. I, I didn't sign up for this. I was signed up with Jesus because it was good for me. Suffering's not good. Hardship's not good. I'm out. And that's what I mean about superficial. There's no depth to the root. It's on rocky soil. And when the sun comes out, it scorches it. Jesus says, when hard times come, when persecution comes, this person hits the eject button on their claim to Christ and walks away. 
Have you ever experienced that bewildering frustration when you see someone who you, sh- you were sure was a Christian? And they just kind of throw in the towel and walk out. And you're sitting there going like, what just happened? I remember standing next to them in church and the smile and the, the tears and how sincerely they seemed to love Christ. And many of you have been saved long enough, you've experienced that. But imagine this brand new church that's just starting from Jerusalem and spreading across the Roman Empire, seeing people quit Christ. Did they suffer persecution? Yeah, at this point, maybe they're looking around and saying, hey man, these apostles are all dying. <laughs> I don't know, I want to be part of this thing. I mean, Paul just lost his head. I don't want to be next. I'm out. It's pretty clear. You, you see the phrase, they were put out of the synagogue? That's an excommunication. Some of you who might be more familiar with the Catholic Church would understand excommunication doesn't mean simply like, hey, you can't attend at this church. Go find another Catholic church. It means essentially the Catholic Church puts you outside and says you can't be saved according to our Catholic dogma. I hope that wouldn't worry anyone in our church. But for the synagogue to put someone out is an excommunication that means they have no participation with the worship and the rituals and the practice they are essentially put out of the family completely. They would be ostracized by others who are Jewish. They would lose the freedom to worship and, and identify in any way as, as part of the Jewish community. It was brutal. So when Jesus or the apostles are threatened to be put out of the synagogue, it's not like just some little local Pharisee is going to kick them out for the day and they can't be participating with them Sunday morning or Saturday morning at that place. They're out. Persecution was real for these churches. Now again, look at what it says. It says, he has no root in himself. Tribulation, persecution come on account of the what? The word. This is not simply you're an annoying person so people unfriend you on Facebook. This is a person whose commitment to Christ makes them unappealing to the world around them and the world around them causes pressure or your pursuit of Christ leads you to, to be unwilling to participate in society in such a way that you feel the, the hurt of it. Here's what 2 Timothy 3 says. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think we could expand that at least on, on the analogy of Jesus' parable here and simply say, if you are a Christian there are times where Christianity offers you very hard times. Sticking it out in a rough marriage. Being unwilling to compromise at work and jeopardizing your job. Standing up for the gospel with a neighbor who now looks down on you and thinks you're a hater. It's being unwilling to let your desires trump Christ's and offering forgiveness to someone who repeatedly hurts you. Real, restorative forgiveness. Being humble in a society that praises pride. There's real cost to following Christ sometimes. If, in fact, the danger is this person has no depth of conviction, then we should... I think correct this in two ways. As we speak to people about the good news of Jesus Christ, call them to understand the cost. Call them to recognize that following Jesus brings with it some stormy clouds. Conviction. Humility. A willingness to serve others. Faithfulness to the people of Christ who will at times not be very kind or loving to you because they too are sinners. Calling people to conviction that is lifelong. If your Christianity is a fad, if it's like bell bottoms, hopefully gone forever, you may not be Christian. And we should tell that to people. 
And so if the Lord is speaking these messages to his people, then maybe just simply affirming in your heart, nothing will let you walk away from Jesus. Nothing will be let into your life that will weaken your conviction. Just consider that now. I don't know, at some point in the future, I can imagine my wife and I on an anniversary renewing our wedding vows. But imagine if, as we headed towards our anniversary and she's getting all excited because my wife gets excited about things like this, doing a big party. And, and then she's going to say, hey, let's, let's renew our wedding vows. And I say, you know, I don't really want to. I can imagine a flash of pain going across her face and then thinking, no, Mark probably has a really good reason for not doing that. So she goes, why not? And I say, well, I don't really think I want to keep renewing this type of idea with you. At that point, the pain becomes very real and there's no good way for me to walk out of that one because I am walking away from the vows I've made. In fact, when we make these vows at marriage, we say, for better or worse, for richer or poorer. Why do we say vows like that? Because we have no idea what the future holds, but we should be held firm by a conviction that we will not be a fair-weather husband or wife. How much deeper should our conviction be towards our Savior? How much longer and richer should be our, our resolve to never let him go. And so Christian, if you're here this morning, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual life. You may be a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, and you may be like a .001 on that scale of 0 to 10. But reaffirm your devotion, your commitment to Christ, no matter what, no matter when, no matter what temptations come, you should reaffirm I will be with you. I will not let you go, Jesus. I will not let the gospel go. I will not walk away from it in hardship. I will not walk away from it to free myself from persecution. I will not walk away from it no matter what comes. I will not walk away. God, sanctify that goal. Secure my heart and hold me close and fast to you. If you can't say that right now, you should be very afraid that you do not have the depth of conviction of the true believer. The third soil is lost by drifting when life promises happiness. Maybe I should say Christless happiness. Because the, the kind of the two opposites that we have going on here, one is I get Christ and I am saved from hell, but when I get Christ, I lose out on what? What do I promise when I choose Christ? That regardless of temptation and, and, and opportunities, I will not walk back into a life of sin. Look how Jesus describes it here in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves what? It proves unfruitful. It shows itself to be unfruitful. Uh, keep your mind on that word. We'll come back to it in just a moment. That This is the person who embraces Christ when it's easy, but when something better comes along, they immediately move off and follow something better. It says the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, win the day for them. If anything is loved more than Jesus, then he is not your king and God. And for a Christian, there are certainly moments where that happens, right? Like this flash of moment where we fall into temptation, we struggle with, with a, a flash of anger where we feel injured and we're willing to sin. And for that moment, who's on the throne? Right? It's like, it's like just for a moment, we're going to defend the king. Not the true king, the imposter king, us. The pursuit of what pleases you? The love of riches? The love of the things of this life? 
will call you away from Jesus Christ. And so for the person who grabs on to Jesus because in the moment it is good for them in their flesh, invariably, at some point, that will not be true and they will walk away from Jesus. If you think that Jesus offers you the best in this life, then you have not understood the Jesus of Scripture. Is Jesus good in this life? Is the Lord good in this life? For you right now, generally speaking, is the Lord good for you? Absolutely. I hope you're all saying yes. This alone, you have hope. I mean, why would Paul face persecution in this life? Because he's hoping in heaven. So in this life, even just the hope that penetrates the, the, the frustrations, the hurts, the injuries of this life is good. That if we face death and cancers, if we face struggles politically and nationally, if our family is, is weak and hurting itself, if we're financially poor, our hope is not anchored to this life. That's the Christian hope and it's good in this life. But if all of those things are hitting us, this life hurts too. And so it's very easy for someone to, to love the riches. And I think Christ in some ways is telling us our arms are not long enough to hold on to riches and the pleasures of this life and Jesus. We cannot have two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will love the one and hate that other. You cannot have two masters. So cling to Jesus and thank him for the joys he gives in this life, but receive them as gifts. But if you hold to riches, if you hold to the pleasures of this life, when Jesus calls you away from them for the cause of the kingdom, you may let go of Jesus instead. Hold to Jesus. Jesus calls his people to prosperity and poverty. He calls them to goodness and hardship. Calls them in kindness and grace to experience some joys in this life and tribulations. If you have set your course on pleasing yourself, you will walk away from Jesus because there's pleasure out there that is not his. Here's what 1 John reminds us of. Do not love the world neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. And then he gives three desires. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the desires from pride. This is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. One of the ways we mark out what is of the world are those things that are not permanent and eternal. Every human being has the image of God and therefore has some level of eternality in the sense that they will never die. They will never be eternally snuffed out. But the stuff of this world that you can buy with money is simply the stuff of this world. Your dog, your reputation, your job, These things are of the world. Your house, your bank account, your prestige, even in many ways your education, at least the diplomas that signify them, your businesses, these things are passing away. They're not going to last. Even your physical bodies, your hair. I mean, I really hope in heaven I get a redo on this hair thing. I'm losing it. Some of you have already lost it. Some of you are looking and you're seeing a body that clearly bears the marks of years of life here. Your body even can become something that's very worldly as you pursue health in a way that, that shows your interest is of this earth. Hear the gospel calling you to something bigger than the world. If COVID-19 has turned your heart 
away from the things of Christ, I hope you feel a grief of conviction because this passage in one of these two sentences strikes at the heart of what's going on in your world. Has the hardship of COVID cooled your passion for Christ? Or has the pursuit of the easiest path cooled your affection for Christ? Because if so, this passage drills you between the eyes and says that signals an unbelief. When carried to its fullest extent, indicates total saving unbelief. Should say that. Saving unbelief probably is the wrong way to say that. You are not saved because of unbelief. The final soil, and I hope you kept your mind on that idea of fruit. I want you to see that fruit is the marker here. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case 100, another 60, and in another 30. So some seed falls in this good soil, and it'd be the same soil that experiences the afflictions of the sun, experiences some level of weeds and thorns, but because it's in good soil, what happens? It's able to resist. It's able to resist the afflictions when the sun comes out and shines brightly. It stays firm and strong because its roots are, roots are deep in soil, and so it's able to withstand the sun. In fact, the sun becomes something good generally for plants. The thorns, the weeds, the desires, the temptations don't choke out this plant because its root is deep. And because it's able to resist these two things, both the temptation for pleasure and the affliction by hard times, it's able to produce what? Boy, this is just depressing. What is it able to produce? Fruit. What's fruit? What's fruit on a Christian? I mean, clearly he's not talking about apples. I hope none of you are growing apples out of your hair. Okay, what are we talking about? Christian fruit is, is signs that God's work of giving you new birth is producing in you new desires, new behaviors, and new commitments. First John would describe it this way. Those who are... are given this new life by God, have characteristics of loving God and loving God's people. They love God's word. They do not fall into ongoing failure of sin where they just give in and enjoy sin. I think if I said, how many of you have struggled with sin over a long period of time? Most hands would go up. But did you just give up and enjoy and just ride in it? Or do you fight against it? Do you resist it? Do you feel conviction by the Holy Spirit to get out of it? There's doctrinal clarity on who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, innocent and slain for us, who died and rose again, the Christ of Scriptures. So we talk about fruit. The true believer persists through hard times and resists temptations to please himself and thereby he secures for himself faithful, righteous behavior that God calls for. When I say secures for himself, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the strength of Jesus Christ at play in this person's life causes him to remain faithful. His roots are deep in grace. And so he's able to resist. A clear test here, if you want to know which soil you are, is to ask yourself, do you have fruit? consistent with the character of Christ? Do you have behaviors and affections and convictions and commitments that are reflected in Jesus Christ himself? I realize we have some guests here this morning that are here because we have new members uh, or new people that are hoping to become members and be baptized. I don't know some of you very well. You've been coming to our church for a short period of time. And so if, if we can just step back and look at a big picture here, as the gospel message is preached, often we don't want to feel like we're on the outside. We don't want to feel like we're bad people. And frankly, as a preacher, I don't want to tell you you're a bad person. 
you're a bad person. We all are. We are all bound in sin with natures that are sinful, and without Christ, there's no hope. Christ, who has made all things, according to Colossians 1, has made you for his joy and his pleasure, and in so doing, he promises to always work for your good. To have every situation of his people's lives be for good. And so he calls you to himself, that you would please him and not yourself, that you would confess and give loyalty to Christ as king. So turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your king, the way in which he forgives you of your sin is by dying as an innocent man for your guilty sin. So that by trusting in him and confessing your sin, you can be saved. This is the message that Jesus Christ procured through his life, death, and resurrection so that when I speak it today, it is God's truth, not human truth. It will stand forever. All those who trust in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. There's only one name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved, and it is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And all who trust in him will live in a eternal heaven and never again experience the corruption and the wickedness of this world. There is a cost, though. Loyalty to Christ, even when life is hard. Loyalty to Christ, even though temptation is sweet. Are you loyal to Christ? Is your commitment and resolve anchored to him with a commitment that will push you through even when life is hard or life away from Christ promises to be better. This is the cost of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because I I want to press this point home a little bit, how many of you have had a hard time in the last two years? Hard. Not like, I was sick on Saturday. I mean, like, hard. Don't put your hand up. Look around. Just please look around. Put those hands up high. You know why I do this? There's a reason you're still here. Life is really hard sometimes for those of us who know Christ. Be faithful to him. The reason you're here is because God is faithful, securing you and holding you fast. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, go ahead, buckle up. We live in a broken world and we ourselves are broken people. Life is hard sometimes. I won't go through with temptation, but Satan is going to be on the sidelines calling you off the field to walk away from Christ and quit following him. Don't listen to his voice. He is a liar. Faithfulness to Christ is the mark of true faith and it's proven in fruitfulness. So here's here's the message of Christ. Faithfulness is proven by fruitfulness. How do you know you're faithful? Fruit. Fruit. What was the mark of, of, of the, the seed that got choked out? It was, not, it was not fruitful. Seed one, two, and three are all unbelievers. Seed four is the only genuine seed. Not the seed, soil. Soil four is the only genuine soil of a believer. May the Lord help us to be deeply committed to him, to love him through hardship, to love him and disregard temptation, and to sanctify our hearts to love him always. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a gospel message that is true, that in in the middle of hard times, we can, with confidence, face with very secure hope that we will never be disappointed having put our confidence in Jesus. 
Father, we know that temptation offers us a shortcut to pleasure. It offers us a temporary high of happiness that will leave our souls broken and destroyed and eternally doomed. Father, would you sanctify your people and secure us because it is through the message of your son and his preaching and passages like this that he warns us. He secures our faithfulness. He strengthens our resolve. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the grace of this preaching from Christ this morning, that you would secure us and you would hold us and you would remind us and you would warn us and so that there would be not one from this church who would fail to persevere in grace. And Father, I I am concerned for those who have not yet come into salvation's grace. And there might be some here this morning who have been disinterested and that they are vulnerable to the deception of the devil. That the loss of freedom, that the fear of suffering would cause them not to come to Christ. Father, I pray that they might recognize that in fact those are true dangers. That loyalty to Christ means they can no longer please themselves the way they might. That temptations must be resisted in order to please Christ. And that in order to please Christ, they might have to walk through hardship. And it is all worth it. And so, Father, give them deep-rooted conviction and call them to Jesus Christ and save them from their sin. So, Lord, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior and as King, would you rescue them from their sin and bring forgiveness and repentance to their lives? Father, we thank you so much for the honest preaching of your son who equipped his church to be able to evaluate their own hearts and to be able to understand why the church often sees people fall away. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen each one here, that we would take the words of Christ and that we would let them change our hearts and secure for us a forever salvation and a faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.